from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Is there not something in the picture of the weeping Christ to touch you? He is God, yet he became man, entering into all the grief and suffering which you know, including tears, and then he died intentionally and willingly for your salvation. If this cannot reach you, what can? If this does not move you, don't pretend to me that you're moved by anything. But if, on the other hand, this does move you, then do as countless millions have done. Come to Christ. Believe on him as your loving and gracious Savior and follow him. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, Jesus Wept. What are some of the things that move us to tears? Babies cry when they're hungry. Little children cry when they're hurt or when they don't get their way. We shed tears of grief at funerals, tears of joy at weddings, and cry during times of loneliness, loss, sadness, and suffering. Whatever the reason for our weeping, it is part of what it means to be human. Since the Bible reveals Jesus as fully human, tears were part of his experience too. What can we learn about the character of Christ from these two words? Jesus wept? The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 33 through 37. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, Jesus Wept. There's an old expression that says, good things come in small packages. Well, I don't know if that's always the case, but it's certainly true of the verse we're going to be studying today the shortest verse in the Bible. Sometimes the divisions have made the text difficult to understand or have destroyed its meaning. The beginning of the second chapter of Ephesians is an example of this, because the words, and you, with which the chapter begins, rightly continue a thought found four verses earlier in chapter one and belong to it. In the form of Ephesians that we have, the connection is lost and there are many other examples. There's a handling of one verse of the Bible by these men, for which I have nothing but praise, however. It's the handling of John 11.35, the verse which is our text for this and the next three studies. Jesus wept. The text is only two words, which makes it the shortest verse in the Bible, yet it's of such importance that it rightly deserves to stand alone. Underline it. Mark it with red ink, add an exclamation point, print it in capital letters, Jesus wept. The verse is important. Spurgeon, who preached two sermons on this passage in the course of his ministry, wrote, There is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration. Well, I agree with Spurgeon. 
We will never exhaust these words, but let's try. If we do, we may well find John 11.35 to be a window through which we shall see into glory beyond. It's a small window, but if we place our eye close to it, we shall see much. Let's look at these words for what they teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about God the Father, about ourselves, and finally, about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, which is to be our example. The first of these, what the words teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ, shall concern us in this study. So, let's ask the question, what do these words teach us about Jesus? The first answer is that they teach us that Jesus was truly a man. Indeed, it's primarily as a man that he wept on this occasion. There are other facts that reveal the full humanity of our Lord, of course. Many of them are physical. We read that Jesus was born of a woman, that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. We're to suppose that he was nursed like other babies. We read, too, that Christ hungered. Jesus knew thirst. On the cross, he cried, I thirst, and they gave him vinegar. Jesus grew tired. One time he was so tired that he fell asleep in a wildly rocking boat, and even the wind and waves failed to rouse him. The Lord's humanity is also seen by his emotions. At times he was angry, though he differed from us in most of our anger in that he grew angry without sinning in the process. In such times, he denounced the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, calling them blind leaders of the blind, whited sepulchers, a generation of vipers, children of the devil. Jesus also showed pity, as in his compassion for the multitude, which he termed a sheep without a shepherd. At times, their hunger moved him, for he fed them in Galilee on at least two occasions. All these facts from the life of Christ speak of his humanity. Yet, we compare them with the verse before us and confess that they do not speak to us as this text does. Jesus wept. From this, we know that his body had glands, as ours do, tear glands, and we know that he felt as we feel. What a Savior! He is a Savior who became as we are, so that we might become like Him. Can't you identify with such a one? Can't you love Him? Oh, hold fast to Christ's divinity, by all means. A Savior who is not divine is no Savior at all. But while you hold to His divinity, do not give up the fact that He is also truly human. For it's as a man, as well as God, that he presents himself to perishing men and women. Second, the fact that Jesus wept teaches us that Jesus experienced grief, as we do. In this we find him fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, for Isaiah said that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Maybe that Jesus could have come to this earth and died for our sin without having entered into the grief that we experience, I don't know, but he did not avoid sorrow. So we conclude that whatever our grief may be, Jesus knows of it and has entered into it. We have a problem at this point, however, for the word that is translated deeply moved in most of our Bibles is one that is very difficult to understand or translate. It's the word 
enabrimesato. Part of the problem is that the word occurs only three times in the New Testament, and that even then it has a meaning that does not really seem to fit this situation. We find the word in Matthew 9.30 and in Mark 1.43 and 14.5. In the first two instances, it's translated straightly charged, in the sense that Jesus strictly commanded a person whom he had healed to tell no one. In the third instance, it's used of those who witnessed the anointing of Jesus with costly ointment by a certain woman and who were said to have murmured about it. Neither of these translations, straightly charge or murmur, seems to fit the context of John 11. In each of these uses, there does seem to be what William Barclay calls a certain sternness, almost anger to the expressions, however, and since this is true, some commentators have placed the idea of indignation or even anger in John's passage. They would translate the verse, Jesus was moved to anger in his spirit. If we ask why Jesus should be angry, they answer either that he was angry with the supposed unbelief or hypocrisy of those who were weeping over Lazarus, or else with death, which he would have viewed as a tool of Satan and a great enemy. Well, it may have been that some of the weeping of the crowd was less than sincere, but this is not said or implied in the passage, and besides, whatever may have been the case with the crowd, it was certainly not the case with Mary and Martha. They were not faking. So, we reject the idea of anger, at least at the hypocrisy of the situation. Anger may have produced shouts of an outraged sensibility, but it certainly did not produce tears on this occasion. The other possibility is to translate the word in a way that suggests deep emotion. This is made possible by the fact that one other known use of the word in the Greek language is to describe the snorting of a horse, as in the excitement of battle or under a heavy load. Thus, and this is by far the better interpretation, Jesus may be said to have groaned with the sisters in deep emotion, emotion out of which an involuntary cry was wrung from his heart. This is the view captured by Phillips, who renders the phrase, he was deeply moved and visibly distressed, or by the translators of the New International Version who say he was deeply moved and troubled. Now, some Christians have found this unacceptable, because they imagine that it's just not proper for Jesus to have been moved to such a degree, particularly by the grief of others. They say that he had to have been moved by something no less great or terrible than sin. But this doesn't entirely satisfy me. I'm willing to grant that Jesus grieved over sin, even more so that he grieved over death, which is the consequence of sin. I also grant that he was saddened by unbelief, as he was on that other occasion when he looked out over unbelieving Jerusalem. But how can these be separated from the grief of the sisters? And how can we read the passage without seeing that Jesus wept with them? At the least, these items must be taken together. Grief, sin, unbelief, death, sorrow. For 
As Lightfoot says, the expression used implies that he now voluntarily and deliberately accepts and makes his own the emotion and the experience from which it is his purpose to deliver man. Or, Morgan writes, he gathered up into his own personality all the misery resulting from sin, represented in a dead man and a broken-hearted people around him. Well, what does this all mean? It just means that Jesus was acquainted with grief, as we are, that he understands it, and is therefore able to comfort those who sorrow. The author of Hebrews knew this because he commends the suffering of Christ to Christians as a point of identification. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to help them that are tempted. It is not an impassable, insensitive, unmovable Christ that is commended to you and me in Christianity. It is one who has entered into our grief and who understands our sorrows. Our you suffering, he knows it. Are you in tears, he has been there before you? Are you distressed, so was he? But he went on to overcome these things so that we might overcome them. Meanwhile, he is one who understands you and to whom you may come. Well, this verse teaches us a third truth about Jesus. It teaches us that he was not ashamed to be human. Here we note that he could have repressed his tears rather than giving vent to them. He could do all things. He could have done this as well. Moreover, he could have given himself good reasons for doing it. He could have said, If I show tears, my tears will be misunderstood. They'll be taken as a sign of weakness. In fact, this is exactly how some did react, for it's what they meant when they said, just a verse later, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? They interpreted his tears as a confession that he could do nothing. Or again, Jesus could have argued that it was foolish to cry when he was about to raise Lazarus. Why weep now, he might have pondered. In a few minutes, everyone will be rejoicing. Or I suppose finally that he might even have viewed his tears as inappropriate in that the whole episode was going to redound to God's glory. Cry when God is about to be glorified? Well, he did not use this excuse either. True, the miracle would result in the giving of glory to God, but that was still, well, it was still minutes away. And now the sisters and their friends were weeping, and if they were weeping, well, he would weep with them. Jesus knew how the story would end. But in the meantime, he was not ashamed to be one with his brethren. May I apply that to you and me? It's easy to do. It merely means that neither you nor I need to be ashamed of being human. It's true, although a quite different point that we need to be ashamed of sin. 
We do not need to sin as Christians, so when we do, we need to be ashamed of having turned from God to that which is offensive to him. But tears are not sin, at least not in themselves, and we can rightly weep in times of great sorrow. In fact, tears can even be a form of obedience to God, for we're told in Romans that we are to weep with others who also weep. This leads us to our fourth point, for not only does the weeping of Jesus teach us that he was truly human, that he was acquainted with grief, and that he was not ashamed of his humanity, it also teaches us that he was pleased to thus identify with his brethren. He could have remained aloof, as we often do, but he did not. Instead, he identified with us in all things, thereby becoming our example. Why is it that we who are Christians so often fail to do this? Why are we so strong in our crusades against sin, but so weak in our identifications with the sinner? Are you one who has launched a crusade? Are you disturbed, for instance, by the declining moral tone of our nation? If you are, I'm glad. I also am disturbed. I wish you well. We need fighters and prophets. But as you declaim against corruption, do not fail to weep for those who are caught up in it. Or does the current widespread visibility of homosexuality disturb you? Are you against it? Well, good. But as you strike against homosexuality, do not forget to weep for the homosexual. Are you disturbed about the traffic in habit-forming drugs? Splendid. Fight it with every weapon at your disposal. It's a great blight on our culture. But as you strike at drugs... Don't forget to weep for the victims, and even for those who victimize. Os Guinness gives us a biblical example of this principle toward the end of his impressive book, The Dust of Death. It's the example of Moses. Moses, you'll recall, suspected that he was to be the liberator of the Jewish people, but the first time he attempted to liberate them, it was from a position of privilege and superiority. And he was a failure. He was a member of the household of Pharaoh. He killed an Egyptian who had been beating an Israelite. But when he came back the next day, he was rejected by the very people whom he was trying to serve. Who made thee a prince and a judge over us, was their question. Years later, however, after he had chosen rather to suffer affliction with the people, Moses was able to identify with them, to share their hunger, their dangers, their problems, and they followed him. Well, in the same way, Guinness concludes, it is when Christians have at least partially entered into the profundity of identification that the Christian community has been at its most human and most sensitive, and that its message has been most credible and compelling. Finally, the fact that Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus also teaches us that he loves. This is what the people of Christ's day saw in his tears, for they observed him and said, Behold how he loves. Did Jesus love Lazarus before that? Of course he did. He also loved Mary and Martha and all the others. But 
It was his tears that actually got through to at least some of them and convinced them of his love. They knew that he loved when they saw him weep with the sisters over Lazarus. I have told the story before of a girl who went to New York from South America. She was young, about 20, and she looked upon the change in her life as a great and exciting opportunity. However, instead of excitement, she found sorrow. She was victimized first by one man, and then by another. She was passed around, and at last, after a period of several years, she returned home embittered and extremely hostile to Christianity. A friend of hers took her to an evangelistic meeting where the Reverend Fernando Vangioni was preaching. He talked to her afterward, but she would not listen. Don't preach to me, was her response. Do you mind if I pray for you? The evangelist asked. Pray if you like, she said, but I won't listen. Well, the evangelist prayed and as he prayed, great tears ran down his cheeks. There was something in the tragedy of the girl's life and the unnatural hardness in her eyes that touched him. There was nothing more to say. You can go now, he said. No, she replied, I won't go. You can preach to me now. No man has ever cried for me before. Let me conclude in this way. First, is there not in the story of Christ's tears that which will touch your heart just as tears touch the heart of the girl from South America and teach you to love Jesus if you have never done so? Perhaps you're one who has heard the gospel. You've heard it presented doctrinally, experientially, and in every way the preachers and teachers of the Word know how to present it, but it has remained in the distance for you. It's remained a theory, but it has never become that which could touch your heart. Well, how about this? Is there not something in the picture of the weeping Christ to touch you? He is God, yet he became man, entering into all the grief and suffering which you know, including tears, and then he died intentionally and willingly for your salvation. If this cannot reach you, what can? If this does not move you, don't pretend to me that you're moved by anything. Serve yourself. Meet your own needs. Prepare yourself for that place far from God's presence where no one will ever be moved to tears for anybody. But if, on the other hand, this does move you, then do as countless millions have done. Come to Christ. Believe on him as your loving and gracious Savior and follow him. Finally, you may be a Christian. If this is so, then let me ask you if there is not in this picture of the weeping Christ that which will convict you of your own cold indifference toward the lost and compel you to bear the gospel to them. Our hearts are cold. We must admit that. But there is in Christ that eternal flame of true love that will enkindle them if we but expose ourselves to it. We sometimes sing in our Sunday services, Oh, how I love Jesus. And we mean it up to a point. But do we love him enough to show love to other people? Do you love Jesus enough 
to leave the affluence of our country in order to cross the seas to a land where men are starving, and in which even on your missionary allowance you will have to live without much that you are now accustomed to in order to present the gospel? Do you love him enough to be a missionary? Or do you love Jesus enough to leave your suburban home? I will not say for good, but once a week, in order to cross your town to love and serve and present the gospel to those whose state of life is not actually much different from those you might find in many foreign cultures? Do you love him enough to help an inner-city mission? Do you love Jesus enough just to cross the street to your neighbor in order to love him and win him to the Savior? Humanity, sorrow, pride, identification, and love, all that is in these verses for us and much more besides. And now, our Father, we ask you to take the truths of this text and apply them to each heart. If there are those listening who have never come to Christ as their Savior, may there be that in this picture of the weeping Christ that draws them to him. And until they do that, may they have no peace until they rest in him, for he's the source of all peace. Upon your own, might there be a new sense of the love of Christ, which is to be also our love for others. And may the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The shortest verse in the Bible is one of the most profound. The fact that Jesus was moved to tears reveals so much about his character. Because he wept, he understands our tears and sorrows. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, Jesus Wept, or simply ask for message number 1319. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts enable the Bible Study Hour 
to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, Jesus Wept, message number 1319. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.